whole Bible is God's inspired word. Now, if we take a closer look at our text, we will see that there is more to it than names. But that doesn't make it any easier to discern the meaning and the relevance for us. And yet the chapter is in the Bible. So let us go on a journey of discovery. Now, the chapter consists of four or five parts. And there is first the specific recommendation of Phoebe of Kenchria. And then there is the first list of names and greetings. And then there is a rather sudden a set of warnings. And then there comes a further set of greetings and a somewhat unusually long doxology. And if you start thinking about it, the questions, of course, multiply. What exactly was the role of Phoebe to deserve so much attention? And why are there so many names in that first block, the verses 3 to 15, while no contemporaries are mentioned at all in the main body of the, of the letter itself? There are just historical names, Moses and Abram and so on. And why are these first batch, is this first batch of names separated from the further names and the greetings in the verses 21 and 24? And why are there these sudden, somewhat stark and dark warnings in verses 17 to 20, but they're also somewhat unspecific? And where, why then is there finally this normal ending with the greetings, but then a rather long doxology? Now, if we take a step back, looking at the broader context, the letter of the, to the Romans, more questions arise. Because when was this letter now written? And why was it written? Are there specific issues or errors, or is this sort of a general compendium of teaching? And when did it, this congregation start, and what kind of people did it consist of? Who is Paul addressing? And how well or not well did Paul know this congregation? And if he never was there, where do all these names come from? Now, you should know that the doxology at the very end of the letter, from verse 25 onwards, in several manuscripts sits at the end of chapter 14, and in one case at the end of chapter 15. And although there is no version known that does not have the chapters 15 and 16, some theologians have taken, I think somewhat illogically, the liberty of suggesting that therefore chapter 16 didn't belong to the original letter. The original letter ended at the chapters 14 or 15, and this was sort of a generic compendium of doctrine that Paul composed for a variety of churches to be combined then with tailor-made greetings sections at the beginning and at the end. And they say chapter 16 happens to be the version of the greetings for the congregation in Ephesus by accident attached to the copy of the letter to Rome. Now, when people start taking scissors to the biblical text and dividing it into little cuttings, it is, I think, wise to use initially as your working assumption 
that these are stopgap solutions because they have exegetically missed the point. So we will try to understand the letter to the Romans and its constituent parts as the unity that it presents itself. Now, broadly speaking, the constituing parts of Romans are often seen first as the introduction, the one that we read, the verses 1 to 17, where Paul has a somewhat unusually long introduction of himself, understand so if he hasn't been there and he tells them about his longing to see them for obviously he hasn't been there so far and then in the verses 16 and 17 there is the summary of his letter and then the main doctrinal part the second part starts at chapter 1 verse 18 and it ends with the beautiful doxology that you can read in chapter 11 at the verses <coughs> In chapter uh, 11, the verses 33 and onwards, O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in the third section, the section, the chapters 12 to 1 to 15, verse 13, he starts drawing out some of the practical implications of that teaching that he had given before. And then finds the end, the bit that we also read, the somewhat odd addendum from verse, from chapter 15, verse 14 onwards. So the main doctrinal body of the letter is then chapter 1, verse 16 or 18, till 15 verse 13, and we were reading the other bits, the introduction and the addendum. And these will be the focus of our attention, our meditation for this evening, especially chapter 16. And I would like to summarize the message from this part of God's word for you this evening as follows. Greet or welcome my team. Or, if you find it easier to Think about it in in an alliteration, although I think it's a little bit colloquial. Meet my missionary mates. Greet, welcome my team. And then we note the following aspects. The recommendation of that team, the qualifications of that team, the composition of that team, the opposite of that team, these are the warnings, the broader support for that team, and indeed the whole Roman congregation. And then finally, the foundation and the purpose of that team, and indeed the whole Roman congregation. So greet, welcome my team. And in the first place, then, there is the recommendation of that team. Now, the tone for the recommendation of the team is set in the verses 1 and 2 about Phoebe the recommendation of Phoebe, but it is, I think, in a way, continued in the instruction to greet this whole long list of other people in verses 3 to 16. Now, Phoebe is introduced to us as a deaconess of the church in Cangria. Now, Cangria was the twin port of Corinth. 
And she may well have been, since Paul was in Corinth, probably at the time of the writing of this letter, the carrier of this letter to the congregation in Rome. And she is introduced as not only a deacon of the church, but also as a prostatis, is the Greek word used, to Paul himself and to many others. Now, it's often translated as helper, not in our version here, but it is far from a kitchen help. The word means the one leading in front of a battle, a leader, a patron, our translation, or protector. And that is the description of her, of her role in the church. And Paul requests that she is received in that role when he adds, in the Lord as befits believers and saints. So this is not a question of general kindness to a passing lady, but the church is being requested to provide a senior church worker with all the assistance she needs. Precisely because they are the church and see she is a church worker. Now, what exactly that role of deacon and status contained, we don't know. Some conservative commentators have taken to distinguishing between women deacons and deaconesses, but that is not the distinction that is known in the New Testament. And then this fulsome recommendation of Phoebe continues to this, with this other list of names. But they continue with the word greet. Now, we should very carefully note here that Paul does not say, give my greetings or regards to all these people on the list. What he gives is an instruction, it's an imperative, to the congregation in Rome that they are to greet these people. And that, of course, is very different. Because if Paul says to me, greet John here, then I can say, Paul says hi to you. I'm just a conduit. I'm not really engaged or involved. But if Paul says to me, you greet John here, then I have to say, John, I welcome you. So it's very different. And in addition, the word greeting in the New Testament does not just say hi. You can find it, for example, description thereof, in the second letter of John, the verses 9 to 11. And we can read there. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And if any, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, and then it continues, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So John here, it says exactly the opposite. You should not greet them and receive them. But of course, the implication is that what Paul says is you should receive them and welcome them in your house. So the word greeting, I think, is often seen as being part of the same community, as striving for the same goal, as facilitating the other's work, just like it was explicitly in the case of Phoebe. The only difference is that Phoebe had just arrived and the others were already there. 
Now then, let us consider after these recommendations of that team, the qualifications of the team. Because I think the, the, the situation becomes a little bit more clear if we look at all these qualifications that Paul mentions. Because the request really is not to greet them and to receive them as tourists or as passing businessmen or as stranded sailors, but as Paul's co-workers, partners and friends, often with a track record in missionary work. Phoebe's position we have already reviewed. The first one in that list mentioned here are Prisca and Aquila. And what it says is, is my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say in our translation, who risked their necks for my life. It's a little bit, it's really a little bit more complicated because risk their lives, the text uses the word next. But it doesn't say they put their neck on the line of a, or on a block. It says they put their necks under something. So you could also understand that they put their shoulders under some work. For my soul is what it literally says. Which I think you can also read instead of me because I couldn't get there. Or to give me ease of mind because I knew that I wanted to go to Rome, but I couldn't. But now at least they can. And then he tells the people in Rome about just their broad track record as co-workers of Paul. It's not just me now, but all the other churches that have benefited from their service. And we know from the book of Acts that they were in Corinth and in Ephesus. And then the next one on that list is Apennatus. And from him it is said that he is, the, the Greek word used is aparchi, which means actually first fruit. Now it is here translated as the first convert, but you may well wonder, well, what's the relevance of that now? The word is also used in the Septuagint for the first offering, the offering of the first fruits, the offerings that were dedicated, that part of the harvest that was dedicated to God. The same word is actually used in 1 Corinth 16 about Stephanos, who was also the first fruit of the people that Paul baptized, it says. But he didn't baptize Stephanus as the first one. It's clear from the context. But what is clear from the context is that Stephanus was a servant of the saints. So he was a dedicated missionary worker. And then the next person on that list is Maria, Mary. And of her it is said... She is a worker for the Roman congregation. And then there are Andronicus and Junias. There is some debate about the name Junias. It can be a man's name, but most often it was a lady's name. So it's quite possible that this is also a couple. And it says of these people, they are my fellow prisoners. But there is actually a nuance to it, because the word used is actually the word used for prisoners of war. So you can also understand that they were taken captive, like Paul, by Christ in his service. And then it says they were of good repute among the apostles. That doesn't necessarily imply that they were apostles, only that they were of good repute with the apostles. 
And then finally it says, and they were in Christ before me. It doesn't necessarily mean that they had been converted before Paul. It may actually literally mean that they were in Rome before Paul. And then there follows a long list of other names, Ampliatus, Stachys, and Rufus. Of them it is said they are beloved in the Lord, a dear friend chosen in the Lord. And then there is Urbanus and three women, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. And they're all described as co-workers in Christ or the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about Apelles. And Apelles, it says, it said that he was dokimon, which means sort of tested, and he persevered in Christ. And then there are, without further specifications, many other men and women mentioned as the ones the congregation has to greet, to welcome, to embrace. But I think with more than half of them explicitly identified as laborers for Christ in some capacity or another, and as closely related to Paul, I think the clear suggestion is that also the others whose reception is recommended are part of Paul's group of co-workers. So having reflected on the recommendation of the team and on the qualifications of the team, let us briefly think about the composition of the team. Because I think it is also worthwhile to briefly note how large and how broad that team is. Diversity probably wasn't so fashionable in his days as it is today, but Paul's team certainly was diverse. Several of them, several of them are Jewish. Priscilla, Aquila, Andronicus, Junias, Mary, Herodian, and a couple of others. And for many others, their names suggest that they were of Gentile descent. Some are couples. Priscilla and Aquila, Andronicus and Junias, others not necessarily. Some were probably slaves, belonging to the household of. Others not. And of course, a third of them are women. I think any feminist quota queen can be jealous about having such a female representation on the team. And if anybody thinks that Paul was a misogynist who didn't value the contribution of women, he really hasn't looked any further than his nose is long. Now, having reflect on, reflected on that theme, then we come to the verses 17 and 20. And there we talk really about the opposite of the theme. It's a warning against others. And it's a stark and a dark warning, and heavy words are used against certain people. Keep away, evil, Satan will be crushed. And it is actually the first time in the letter to the Romans that Paul identifies a specific people, a group of people, as opponents. He does not identify any group in the teachings of the main body of the text as such, but here, after the recommendation of his team, he does. But we should also note that what the problem is with these people is not very specific. What he does say is is that they will create a conflict, divisions and obstacles, with the received teaching that you learned. 
Now, probably Paul refers here to the teaching that the Romans already had received, maybe partly from his team that he had just recommended to them. And that is the teaching that he, in the letter in chapter 2, verse 16, but also again in chapter 16, verse 25, refers to, interestingly enough, as my gospel. Now, since it is not specific, it seems that such people may not have yet shown up. But from bitter experience in other congregations, he knew and he had learned that pretty soon they would. And how exactly they would mislead, he does not know yet. But he anticipated that they will serve their own appetites. Belly is the, literally, is the literal word used. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were after money or good food, but that they would follow their own gut feel, their own emotions and their own preferences. Serving the belly or their guts stands in our text, in verse 18, in opposite to the teaching you have learned, in verse 17, and your obedience, in verse 19. So, it is the opposite of not drawing your conclusions from the teaching, but letting what I feel in my guts decide. It is letting the emotional connection prevail over logical reasoning. It is the conflict between following the teaching or the smooth talk and the credible and the good sound stories and the theories. And what they will peddle, Paul anticipates, is the opposite of obedience and wisdom about what is good and right. And after having recommended his team on the one hand, there is then on the other hand a strong warning not to follow, not to follow these peoples, these people <coughs> that Paul anticipates may show up. So then, in the fifth place, let us briefly reflect upon the broader support for that team and, of course, the Roman Church in its entirety. Because after having ended the previous section with a blessing, the letter to the Romans now gets into the more usual greetings here from those who are with Paul. Greetings from them to the whole congregation, including the list just mentioned in Rome. And the greetings indicate, I think, a broad support from diverse church leaders, influential, maybe not, Jew and Gentile, who does wish to support the missionary effort in Rome. Mentioned is Timothy, one of Paul's co-workers, who he has sent to various places and will do so again. And then there are relatives of him, and then there is Gaius, his host, probably a well-to-do man, and then there is Erastus, described as the city's economist or treasurer. Archaeologists actually discovered in Corinth a paved stone with the inscription, Erastus, Commissioner of Public Works, bore the expense of this pavement. And maybe it was him, a senior civil servant who filled potholes from his own pocket. Wouldn't that be progress? So after having considered the recommendation of his team, the composition of his team, the support, the opposite team, and the support for that team, then there is at the end of this chapter the foundation and the purpose 
of that team and indeed the Roman Church in its entirety. Paul finalizes, finishes with a summarizing doxology. It is all, all that he wrote in this letter and all that his team has evangelized and all that the congregation may faithfully do, it is to the glory of the only wise God. God's glory is the purpose. And it is achieved by all nations being brought to faith, believing and obeying in Christ. The mystery that had been known to the Jewish prophets long ago and is now revealed in the proclamation of the Lord Jesus to the Jews and the Gentiles. So God's glory was the purpose and God's action in the past and in the present is the foundation. Now having gone through Romans 16 in some detail. Let us see whether it helps us to get a broader insight in the meaning of the letter by looking at the context in which it was written. For this odd chapter with all these names may well help us to understand the relationship between Paul and the congregation in Rome and what motivated him to write this letter. Now in the sections we read, Paul clearly indicates that he had never visited Rome. He had not started that congregation, which is unusual because most of the congregations in Asia Minor and in Greece had been started and initiated by Paul. And about the origins of the church in Rome, there are next to no facts preserved in the Bible. And yet he writes this most extensive letter. Now, there is a view, hypothesis, speculation, whatever you want to call it, that the Roman church was started early by Jewish people returning after Pentecost, or maybe even by the Apostle Peter, after he, as is described in Acts 12, verse 17, sought safety from Herod Agrippa in another place. And therefore, it is assumed that the congregation started as one of Jewish Christians, and so the theory goes, the Jewish Christians were then thrown out of Rome by Claudius in 49 after Christ because of riots between the Jewish Christians and the synagogue. And thereafter the congregation became dominated by gentle believers. But we know that after a couple of years the Jews started to return to Rome and that therefore then tensions occurred and that Judaizing pressures arose for the congregation to comply with Jewish regulations. Very much as is addressed in the letter to the Galatians. And in this tense situation, Paul, familiar with this kind of trouble, wrote this letter, even though he did not know the congregation, and especially then, of course, the chapters 9 to 11. Now, there, there are some variations of this view that Judah, what and about what views and ideas and theories the Judaizers precisely held. There is a kind of supposedly Pharisaistic view of the law as requiring good works for salvation attributed to the Jews, or sometimes in the new perspective on Paul, the view to them is attributed, the view attributed to them is that the law was used as a kind of nationalistic identity marker. But I think we can leave that aside for a moment. Because there are some, there are some problems with these theories. 
there is, in fact, I think, no evidence from the New Testament that that whole long list of Jews in Acts 2, the verses 5 to 11, that were listening to Paul's sermon in Pentecost, at Pentecost from every nation under the heaven that any returned and evangelized. It is there already unclear whether they were residents or visitors, but even if they returned, they left no traces of the gospel in many other places. Paul had to start from scratch virtually everywhere. I think it is also unlikely that Peter sought refuge in Rome, that is the Roman Catholic view, in order to support the theory of the Pope's apostolic succession. But not only was Rome very far away, Herod was also extremely well connected in Rome. It would not have been a very safe place. It's also unlikely that Paul would have never mentioned Peter in this letter if Peter had started that congregation. And I think it is also less plausible that Claudius threw the Jews out of Rome because of the riots. The quotation of the Roman historian Suetonius, which is often used for that theory, is too vague, and the context of that quote is actually riots in Palestine. But most importantly, Paul's letter to the Romans gives no indication of having been written into any Judaizing controversy. The letter is explaining through rhetorical questioning and is encouraging but it is not opposing or polemic until these few verses in chapter 16. But as we saw, they are somewhat unspecific and not directed at the Jewish opposition. If we in turn, instead turn to the letter itself, we can note a few things. We know, he tells us, Paul, for, for a very long time and on several occasions, wanted to bring the gospel to Rome. He says so in chapter 1, verse 13. And he had wanted to do so as an apostle to the Gentiles. Again, chapter 1, verse 13, and also in 15, the verses 14 to 16. And he adds, he had wanted to do so into a new situation, not building on other people's fundaments. So presumably, when he wanted to come earlier to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Rome was still a virgin territory for the gospel. But he also says the Lord had kept him busy in what today is Turkey, in what today is Greece, and probably also in what today is the Balkan. And he never made it to Rome, and he says so himself in 15 verse 22. He was stopped several times by the Lord when he wanted to go and bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Rome. Now, we do not know for fact what occasions he referred to. There are some possibilities arising from Acts reports on the secondary missionary journey, the second missionary journey. Uh, we, hear, we, read, we can read there that after Paul had traveled through Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, which is a broad valley in the middle of Turkey, that he had wanted to go on, which was a logical route to Ephesus, which was a big port from which he could sail to Rome. But that he is stopped, and he is sent north. So maybe that was the first occasion on which he was blocked. After he has gone north through Galatia and Phrygia, he comes to Troas, and he crosses over into what is now northern Greece, and he comes to Philippi. If you are at Philippi, you are on what is called the Via Ignatia. It was the main route from Byzantium to Rome. Still there. It's now a highway. And he is traveling down that highway to Corinth and then to 
Berea, and he may have well wanted to go on across northern Greece to what is today Albania, from where you could cross the Adriatic into Italy and then at Brindisi take the Via Appia north to Rome. But again there he is waylaid by the aggressive Jews out of um, Thessalonica and while he is in Berea he needs to be hurried off to the coast down south and ends up in Athens and there we have the reports of course of the Areopagus. And then the third occasion was probably that he went from Athens to Corinth. Corinth is a logical place also to go to um, Rome because the Gulf of Corinth is protected, so you, every season you can go there and cross to Italy. Read in chapter 18, verse 2, that he meets there Aquila and Prisca who were thrown out of Rome because of Claudius's edict. Now, you can take that two ways or both ways. You can say, well, that was the explanation as to why Aquila and Pris- uh, Priscilla and Aquila were there. But, of course, it also blocked Paul's wish to go to Rome. Now, we don't know this for fact, but there are several possibilities where it's clear that the Lord stopped Paul from going. And now, at the time of, this, of the writing of this letter, he is on his third missionary journey And he explicitly recognized that in the meantime, the gospel has already been brought to Rome, chapter 1, verse 8. And he is complimentary about their faith. You can read that in chapter 6, verse 17, and 15, verse 14. And he presents the teaching he wants to bring to them as a reminder of what they already knew, chapter 15, verse 15. But he also feels closely connected to the coming of the gospel to Rome, as we can see, in chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, where he talks about the plural and includes himself in the activity of that calling, and in chapters 2, verse 16 and 16, verse 25, where he refers as the gospel, to the gospel that they have received as my gospel. But he still wants to come. But the purpose of his visit has now changed. To reinforcement, is what he says in chapter 1, verse 11 and 15, verse 15, and to mutual encouragement. And in fact, having it made, we read in the letter, all the way to Illyricum, which is today's Albania, the end point of the Via Ignatia, and having completed all his work in the areas that he had covered east of Rome, that's what he says in 15 verse 24 and 3, his goal is now going west of Rome to Spain, and maybe the congregation can help him on his missionary trip, 15 verse 24. The last task still standing between his coming to Rome is the bringing of the collection to Jerusalem, which he mentions in chapter 15, verses 25 to 28, and he recommends into their prayer also. So the fact that he writes his letter when he is about to set out for Jerusalem places the writing of the letter in Corinth at the end of the, fish, of the third missionary journey, about 57 after Christ. Now, if we then turn to the book of Acts, we read there the sequel to where the letter of the Romans left off. Because there he said he wanted to come, and in Acts he finally does. What happened is is that he returned with that collection to Jerusalem, got there probably 58 after Christ, after the third missionary journey. And there he was arrested, and thus prevented from going back west to Rome and Spain. You can read it in Acts 21 to 23. And in fact, his going to Rome is delayed by two more years 
as two sleazebully Roman governors, knowing that he is innocent, keep him in jail. Felix to extract some money, Festus to curry favor with the Jewish establishment. And in order to break through that deadlock and in order to get to Rome, Paul needs to appeal to Caesar. And so he does. You can read that in Acts 24, verse 26. And then after this long and eventful trip that you can also read about in the book of Acts, where he's trying to winter at Crete and he is shipwrecked at Malta, he finally arrives in Italy at about 60 after Christ. And that is where in in Acts 28, verse 11, we picked up the reading. And now there are two interesting things to consider in that section in Acts that are related to the letter to the Romans and to chapter 16, I think. The first one is in the verses 14 to 15. And we read that there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. There is in Pituoli. It's about 75 miles south of Rome. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there who had heard about us came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. That's about 30 or 40 miles south of Rome. And on seeing them, the Lord thanked God and took courage. Now, I think it is quite noticeable that the language about the brothers in Pituoli who do not have the definite article is quite neutral. But when it comes to the party from Rome... He is talking about the brothers there, and Paul, I think, is greatly rejoiced. It sounds like the reunion with his team. The brothers there, great joy, taking courage, because he's finally meeting up with his missionary team that he had wanted to visit at least two years earlier if he hadn't been put in jail. And the second thing we read in this section of Acts is his dealings with the Jews. It was Paul's custom in every place that he went to, although he was the apostle to the Gentiles, first to go to the Jews, to the synagogue usually, and to argue on the basis of the Old Testament with them that they should accept the Lord Jesus as the promised Messiah. And we see Paul here now engaging in the dialogue with the synagogue. And if you read the text, you distinctly get the impression that that had not happened yet in the verses 20 to 23. It does not sound here like the confrontation between the Jewish Christians and the traditional synagogue had already taken place. They say, oh yeah, it sounds like, oh, this sect is a bit far from our bed show. We have heard about it, but we have not received any detailed news. We want to hear more. Come and talk. And then there is a big meeting. Doesn't sound like, you know, a couple of years before there was a big fight. So if you now look at all these pieces of the puzzle, the picture that emerges is that Paul, who was used to work with teams and sending his people everywhere, like he did with Timothy and Titus and many others, had sent several of his co-workers to Rome, possibly during his third missionary journey, since he could not go himself. And that is why he makes the recommendation in this letter of Phoebe and the rest of his team in Romans 16 and warns against receiving others that he would expect to come also, like they had in other congregations. 
and the confrontation with the synagogue had not yet taken place. Maybe his co-workers didn't feel equipped to do so and they wanted to leave to Paul. Wouldn't be surprising because the rabbis probably required their opponents to have some standing, which Paul, as a trained rabbi, had. It required training in the way they debated, which could be quite sharp. And, of course, it required experience with the rather creative resourcefulness of the exegetical methods of the rabbis. But he does anticipate that the confrontation will come. And therefore, in the letter, he addresses the questions on how we move from Israel to the church and how we, while respecting the Old Testament, nevertheless move beyond it with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And through this letter, he wants his team and the congregation to be equipped for these questions. And that is why he writes this letter to the Romans and he asks them to embrace his team. And when he finally, after much delay, two years later than he had expected when he was writing this letter, he arrives, he is elated to meet the brothers and does indeed engage with the synagogue. And as Paul knew so very well from his experience in other places, and as indeed he anticipated in his letter to the Romans, the majority of the Jews reject the gospel, and as is his custom, he then tells them that the gospel will move on to the Gentiles. So then, finally and in closing, what are the lessons that we can learn from this old chapter 16 in Romans? Well, in order to understand the biblical text, we need to read it in context. And we need to respect the text. We mentioned some views on the status of chapter 16. There are also other views that cast doubt on the historical fairness and the accuracy of Acts 28. Because it does not fit with the views on the origin of the congregation in Rome. And Lucas then called the theologian rather than a historian. But as I said earlier, when people come with scissors or start casting doubt on the reliability of the text, I think they usually miss the point. So we need to read in context. And if the only lesson three years from now you still remember, that I always went on about the context, then I'm already delighted. Now, the other thing is, is that this strange chapter 16 actually gives us valuable information about Paul's relation with the congregation and thus on the context in which the letter needs to be read. Because all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. And then briefly, there are also some lessons from the chapter itself. Missionary work for Paul was teamwork. Very simple, very brief. We can also see that he had used a very broad team. Jews, Gentiles, couples, singles, men, women. And all the ladies in our congregation who contribute to the church work are standing in a long tradition that was highly valued by the Apostle Paul. And as I said earlier, if you see Paul as a misogynist, then you are not looking any further than your nose is long. I think there is also reason to 
consider that the New Testament Church seemed to have a much broader definition of what deacons and deaconesses of the Church do and how they contribute, maybe broader than we seem to have today. We also see that the congregation is called, ordered in a way, to welcome and support the team. Greet, it's an imperative, these workers. And finally, we saw that in the background of it all, there were church leaders from elsewhere who were supportive of this congregation and its missionary team. And for Paul, in the end, all this activity has both its foundation and its purpose in God, because that is what he says in his doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to thank you for your word. For your word in all its multifaceted aspects, in its many different ways of expressing itself, and that places us for a continued challenge, but also in front of a continued source of encouragement and joy. And Father, we ask that you will continue to arouse our interest in your word so that we may know you better and so that we may understand your, what you have for us in store in our life better and so that we may enjoy your support and the comfort and the sovereign leadership that you have displayed and will continue to display throughout history. And Father, we ask this not just for our personal lives, but also for life as a congregation and for our denomination and for all faithful churches and people that are worshipping and following you. So that in the end, it may indeed be that the glory is to you as the only wise God forevermore, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.